You are now tuned in to Believe. Do you believe? Welcome. Thank you for tapping into some untapped keg, our podcast about sobriety and mental health. I'm one of your hosts, RJ Zimmerman, here with my good friend, Monte Ball. How you doing, big guy? I'm doing well, man. It sounds like we got ourselves a, a cheering track going on in the background. Do you hear that? <laughs> it's, it was like perfectly timed right there. Uh, I'm good, man. I'm I'm excited. I'm thrilled that we, we have ourselves a special guest today, but... Uh, but before we get to this lovely person who we have as a guest, RJ, how you doing, man? Uh, a lot better today than I was yesterday. So <laughs> mm. yesterday I was uh, <laughs> I was in bed most of the day with uh, flu, so that was not great. But it's okay. Well, I'm Never. a lot better today. But without further ado, we are honored to be joined by Jessica Leahy, who has spent more than 20 years as a teacher, including five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab center for adolescents. She's a New York Times bestselling author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can't Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. She writes about education, parenting, and welfare for The Washington Post, New York Times, and The Atlantic. How are you doing, Jess? Excited. Thank you for joining us. I am doing great. Well, and I have a, I just so you, for listeners, I have a puppy on my lap who makes little weird noises. So if you hear little weird noises, it's because I'm enjoying having a puppy on my lap. Yes, that's awesome. We're so excited that you're here. We, we, we're grateful that you are Thank lending you. us your time. Yeah, oh, I'm happy awesome. to. So, yeah. So we, we had the opportunity, uh, got your book, uh, checked out your articles, listened to a few podcasts that you were on. And you are you are quite the the just force when it comes to <laughs> in, in a really good way, quite the force when Thank it you. comes to what it is that you're very passionate about, wanting to do the research and obviously wanting to give back to to parents, um, to to the youth, uh, schools, to those struggling with addiction and obviously sharing your story throughout that journey, uh, throughout your work as well. Uh, I think it's all commendable stuff that you're doing. And I love it. It's pretty cool to love your job. I mean, my job, it's ridiculous. Like it's my dream situation, you know, growing up, if I could have shaped a job, it would be, you know, to read stuff and then explain it to other people and get to be a writer and get to tour around the world and tell people about the stuff that I learn. I mean, it's like my dream. I, I love it. I'm a big dork. <laughs> You're going to fit right in perfectly. Though, let me tell you. <laughs> That's us in a nutshell. That's pretty awesome. So, I mean, honestly, again, here with Untapped Keg, we're super relaxed. Mm -hmm. um, I got a few questions, obviously, that I wrote down, but we never usually really write stuff down. We just, wherever it's going to go, it's going to go. But um, obviously, you know, a little bit about myself. I'm someone who's in recovery from alcohol um, six years on August 1st of this year. Um, so thank you. I appreciate it. So I'm, I'm most definitely excited about this journey that I've been on learning, growing, understanding what my triggers were, understanding what I was suffering with and why I was self-medicating. Um, 
And and obviously now we have this untapped keg uh, podcast to share our journeys with others. And RJ, please share your story. And then we would love to hear yours, Jessica. Sure. I'm been sober for eight years, but I've, you know, I've only been in recovery really for about a year and a half since we started the podcast. Cause I didn't know there was a difference. Um, <laughs> so I was just like a stubborn a-hole and like, was like, I'm not going to drink anymore. And that was it. And, uh, but then when we started the podcast, I always got a lot of, um, a lot from other people talking about their own stories and Mons and I would go golfing. And we talk to each other about it. And it's like, you know, a lot of people would benefit from the, we're just two average people like going through this mm-hmm. and people would benefit from hearing that. So let's start a podcast. And after about two years of me nagging him, he's finally like, all right, fine, let's do it. So oh, you have no idea how helpful <laughs> it is for other people. Just yesterday at work, and I'll, I'll talk about mm-hmm. them when it's my turn. And I'm sorry, I'm totally interrupting. No, but just yesterday, we no, were talking fine. about we were talking about sober communities at the rehab where I work now. And, you know, hesitation to, you know, for 12 step. And we can talk about that if you want. But the difference between sobriety and recovery and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just some people who are new to recovery and really feeling like, you know, no, I've got it all figured out. This is how I'm going to do it, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do it on my own. And, you know, talking up alternate, all the places where people can get support. It's not just in 12-step meetings, it's online and it's in, you know, Facebook groups and it's in podcasts like this. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful because it gives me more opportunities to recommend alternative places just to get sober support. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, you know, (laughs) my first like six years of sobriety kind of flew past, luckily that I had a few ups and downs, but like we started talking with other people and I'm like, I really haven't dealt with the underlying issues. Why I drank the way I drank, why I felt why I couldn't stop. I just, I, I always blacked out. Always, no matter what, I blacked out. And, um, you know, reading your book, The Addiction Inoculation, it's just like reading like a mirror, like so many of my experiences I can put into there of the traps that like I personally fell down and like I would not have guessed it, but I was an emotional drinker like um, and for personal reasons, too. So. This book here, like, it's going to help me with my kids. Like I told you, I have a four and a two-year-old. Like, being able to know, have steps and some, uh, like, guidelines on how, how best to raise kids in an, in this environment. Because they're going to know that daddy's doesn't drink alcohol, that daddy's sober. And uh, it's good to know that some ways that you can go about it and stuff. So, I really appreciate uh, the book and everything that you've done so and four is not too early to start that's the weird thing is when i send so the book has a whole chapter on um because as a teacher i had to do this it has a whole chapter on education and Mm -hmm. you know school programs and what works and what doesn't and the shockingly low number of schools who use a program that use a program that actually works um Mm. and so I'll send it to, you know, elementary school principals or middle school principals. And they're like, oh, I'll send that on up to the high school. And I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Because these programs and the communication around substance use prevention starts really, really young. That's why the book starts with pre-K and K and goes all the way through college, because uh, it's really 
you know, we obviously don't talk to little tiny kids about IV drug use and stuff like that, but we have, there's all kinds of messaging around um, just things in our, um, in our environment that can hurt us and why we do the things we do, like not taking medicines with other people's names on the label and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That starts really young. It does. It does. And I'm glad you kind of, uh, let me, let me jump in here real quick, RJ. I'm I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, I was listening to your podcast uh, episodes you were on with Amy Moore and uh, hopefully I said her last name correctly. Mm-hmm. And uh, you stated that our schools are, f- are failing our students with the lack of substance abuse programs. Yeah. Um, and well, for and, me, I'm and- Sorry, yeah, I'm ahead. absolutely no, no, no. I get, I get just all heated about this. No, it's it's absolutely <laughs> true. And and just spoiler alert: the programs already exist and are in place um, in many places, and we don't even realize what works and what doesn't. And it's not always the school's fault; they just don't know where to look for the programs that actually work and how to make sure the programs they're uh, in, you know deploying in their schools actually work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell. That's when I was listening to that episode. Like your your passion. Um, about that. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is that is a lot what I, I focus on here in Wisconsin, too, is, is trying to help out uh, with just providing them with programs, uh, the school districts mm-hmm. around here, because I can see the the lack as well. And I just again, it's just very important stuff that you've been talking about. It, it really it really is. To give the listeners um, sort of an idea of what I'm talking about, the Um, So only 57% of schools in this country have any substance use prevention programs at all. And of that 57%, only 10% of those programs are evidence-based. So evidence really, especially now, (laughs) really needs to be sort of guiding what we do. We need data to make sure that uh, the programs we're using around kids for substance use prevention work. And, you know, the obvious... um, the obvious program I can point to, not today's dare to keep kids off drugs, but the dare to keep kids off drugs when it first started was, you know, a, a law enforcement based program. And, you know, there was no data around whether or not it worked. It just got deployed everywhere. And it turns out that we found out later on that kids who went through dare were more likely to use drugs and alcohol than kids who hadn't been through dare, which, you know, not such a good thing. Right. So the cool thing though, is as I talk about in the addiction inoculation, there's really, they're really um, great organizations that objectively review the data of efficacy and for where the information is coming from and where the procedures in place come from. And spoiler alert, as we are figuring out that social emotional learning programs are so important to kids, especially coming out of this pandemic, um, the best substance abuse, substance use prevention programs are just really good SEL, social emotional learning programs with uh, sort of health and safety components to them around drugs and alcohol. They exist, they're out there. um, They save us money over the long run um, and why we're not using them everywhere. I have no idea. But anyway, that's, that's sort of what I spend a lot of my time trying to get people to do. And if anyone listening knows of a principal or superintendent that would like a free copy of the addiction inoculation, just get in touch with me and, and I can get those out. Because I think what the research also shows is that the more invested uh, superintendents and principals are in the program, the more sort of full-throated their support, the more effective the programs are. 
So I'm trying to get books to them. I had a donor that a really generous philanthropist donated a lot of my own books to me <laughs> at, at his cost so that I could send them to superintendents and principals. So that's where I've been, you know, I've been sort of coming at it from that angle and then coming at it from the, you know, touring around and talking to parents and saying, well, why don't you check to see what program your school is using and then push to get one that's actually effective. Hmm. That's... <clears throat> That's really awesome. And, you know, talking about your, the SEL, the social emotional learning, mm -hmm. like that goes back to a long while ago, like months and I, and maybe this is off podcast. We've talked about how really it's not about the substance use that we really need to be framing like young kids. It's about your emotions and trying to, because a lot of traumatic things happen at school when you're a kid, right? Like you get ostracized for something you get uh, made fun of. But like as a kid and you're you're learning about these emotions and everything about yourself, like it's not just confusing, but it's painful. And yeah, not and it's funny you mentioned help us like through things. it's it's mm -hmm. funny you mentioned social ostracism because that's a risk factor for substance use disorder. And, you know, the thing is, we know. So my <clears throat> excuse me, my goal with this book was when I first got sober and my attention was sort of immediately turned to my kids as, okay, well, what can I do to, you know, make it so that, cause I was raised by an alcoholic and one of my parents was raised by an alcoholic and so on and so on and so on. How do I make that stop here? How does, mm -hmm. how, how do I, you know, at least increase the chances that I stop that with, you know, my kids and uh, the party line from the experts, which is correct is quote, substance use disorder is preventable. That word preventable is never really articulated in a, in a mm -hmm. clear way for parents, especially parents whose kids are already preloaded with a genetic predisposition for substance use disorder, which is about 50 to 60% of the risk picture. So how do, what works, what doesn't, I was willing to look at everything. Like you tell me that a treatment center is using dogs in their program because they're, it's great to have an emotional support animal out there. I'm like, okay, let's look at all the research on whether or not having an animal in the household helps. And, you know, it's, that's about the time we took on our third dog. <laughs> um, you know, I was, and the nice thing is for me as someone who, yes, I did get sober in 12 step programs. Um, I didn't have, I don't, I'm not being funded by anyone in particular, except my publisher, obviously. Um, I don't have any, you know, I'm grateful for 12 step, but I don't have a horse in any given race. Like I'm willing to say, okay, is substance use disorder, a brain disorder. And actually there's an article in the New York times this weekend saying, no, it's not. Is it a disease? And this person says, no, it's not. And his point is actually, it's bigger than that, but whatever. Um, is it a developmental disorder that there's evidence there too? Is it a, re a response to trauma? There's evidence there too. So the problem is, is that in this country, the um, prevailing theory, which is the brain disease theory, gets all the funding. So, you know, we have people out there <clears throat> talking about the alternative theories, um, but it's really hard to get that information from someone who doesn't already have, you know, a bias. Mm -hmm. So I try to be the unbiased journalist coming at this to say, here's what we know and here's what we don't. And it helps I'm married to a statistician because if I'm unsure, you know, just how good is this data, I hand it to him and he says, uh, you know, this is pretty good, but here's the caveat you should mention. So we sort of, you know, between the two of us, 
I hope anyway, and sorry, that's the puppy in the background eating a plastic bag, <laughs> um, you know, between the two of us and, and, uh, and all the research and experts that I have access to, which has been lovely, you know, hopefully I have the answer to what works and what doesn't work and no, there are no guarantees, but here are best practices. Mm-hmm. which is all I could ever want as a parent. Right. right. And, and the, the catch is going to be, as I talk to parents about the risk factors is to not get defensive about some of the risk factors, but to view those risk factors, like whether or not your kids have a genetic predisposition or whether or not you've been through a divorce or separation, because yes, that's a risk factor for substance use disorder as well, but taking that information and saying, okay, not going to get defensive, just going to say, okay, that's a risk factor. What do I do with that information? How do I use that information to empower me to pick the preventions, the protective factors that will, in the book, I use the analogy of a uh, scales of justice, Mm -hmm. the higher your risk side, the heavier your protection side is going to have to be to zero that out. So how do I take a look at all my risk factors? And believe me in the book, you know, my, my shtick is to say, hi, I've made all the mistakes. Here are all the mistakes I've made. And here's how I'm going to try to be better next time or um, outweigh those risk factors I've placed on my kids. So anyway, that's a very long winded say way of saying there is an answer to uh, what it means when we say uh, substance use disorder is preventable. No guarantees, mm-hmm. but it is preventable. No, no guarantees at all. I, I think no. it, it's, I love, I love, I really love the fact that again, when, when you, when you talk about the impacts of underage drinking and mm-hmm. how our adolescents don't understand um you know exactly where their brain is at in this developmental stage and how detrimental alcohol can be to the brain. So um, I'm going to break you I, off there. It's not don't understand. It's they just haven't learned. Totally capable of understanding. True. Yeah. If you don't very slander true. those adolescents, because I'll come for you. <laughs> <laughs> very. Because they're that, amazing. That is very true. <laughs> that is very true. Thank you. Thank you for, for correcting <laughs> me on that. I, I really appreciate it. But yeah, they... Um, have yet to, to learn to learn exactly about what it is, what the impacts of alcohol can do to the brain. And right. so I would really love for you to share more about that. I, I, you really hit that on the head when I was reading um, a bunch of your articles regarding that topic. Yeah. So I love, love, love reading about the adolescent brain because um a mentioned I'm a big dork, but also um, the adolescent. So there are two periods of development of the human brain that are the most rapid, um, the biggest overhaul. So essentially we use this term called plastic, which means that um, our brains during these two specific periods are so acutely susceptible to um, our environment in that um, a lot of change is going on in the brain and what happens around us, including the trauma in our lives, including the chemicals we put in our bodies have, uh, you know, really affect the brain in ways they might not outside of these periods. And the first one is from zero to two. And Mm -hmm. as I say in the book, you know, zero to two, that's like easy to see, right? One day the baby doesn't know they have feet. And the next day the baby knows they have feet. And that's because some connections were made in the brain. Synapses are, that's the part of the neuron that talks to each other. And I'm not going to get all technical, but it's, it's all in there. If you want to read it, um, 
so much is happening in the brain and it's easy to see and it's cute, right? All that zero to two stuff is super cute. And we love seeing the new developments. We put it in their baby books. In adolescence, we don't tend to see those changes as cute and we don't tend to keep baby books on our adolescence, but we probably should because so much more change is happening. It's just a little bit harder to see. Mainly what's happening is our brains grow from the bottom up, um, meaning that at first, when we're young, we're really good reactors, like our amygdala, our limbic, limbic system, the parts of our brains that help us perceive and react, those work great, right? So like toddler gets pissed off, toddler punches other toddler. That's sort of how the, um, the lower brain functions work. As adolescents get older, starting in, um, starting in puberty, going until, I hate to say this, the early to mid-20s, the brain is in this second period of incredible plasticity where tons of change is happening and they're slowly but surely gaining access to their upper brain functions, their, uh, their prefrontal cortex, their frontal lobe, all the areas of the brain that do the adulting stuff. So anytime you're angry, you're adolescent for not being able to like plan, keep goals, uh, remember to pick up their stuff, their dishes, put them in the dishwasher, just look like right between their eyes. And remember, that's the part of the brain that's not fully connected yet. So in order for all that connection to happen, the brain needs, the brain needs its receptors. It needs other chemicals to not glom up those receptors mm -hmm. because synapses only continue to thrive when they can actually talk to each other. So when we like mess up some of the receptors and make it so the brain doesn't talk to each other, little synapses can't talk to each other uh, appropriately, things die off, con connections get cut off. And so for example, alcohol affects the adolescent brain differently um, in practice and in um, in terms of biology. Uh, for example, an adolescent is gonna be a lot less likely than an adult to know how impaired they are by a given amount of alcohol. It's not just lack of experience, it's that they simply do not perceive themselves as being as impaired as they are. And so you can imagine what that can lead to is a kid being a lot more likely to drive a car or get in the car with someone who's like, oh no, dude, I'm fine. The other problem is that they're less likely to feel the negative after effects of a night of drinking than an adult might. So they don't get that negative feedback in the same way that an adult might. Um, there are also issues with females versus males. Females have less of an enzyme that breaks alcohol down. So even given the differences in like muscle weight and fat weight and all these other different things that make alcohol different for women than for men, uh, women are just going to get drunker on a, on the same amount of alcohol than a man, um, even given body weight stuff. Um, in terms of other drugs, you know, we know that uh, pun intended chronic use, chronic users of marijuana have smaller hippocampuses, um, the part of their brain that um, controls and processes memory. So those jokes about, you know, people who use a lot of weed, not having great short-term memory, Hey, that's hippocampus stuff. It's not, you know, just a stereotype. It's real. And we also know, and according to a study that came out not that long ago, actually, that um, it also the prefrontal, the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex is there's some thinning in there as well with kids that use a lot of weed. So stuff that might be a mild to moderate risk in adulthood can be a much bigger risk to adolescents because so much is going, so much development is going on in the adolescent brain. Um, 
I try to write about it in as entertaining a way as possible in the book because my editor's great. She's like, yeah, your readers don't care about this. Yeah, make it more interesting. So anyway, I, I wrote it, the chapter to be about three times as long and then just edited out all the boring stuff. So hopefully the, hopefully the chapter on that science is as entertaining as humanly possible. But it's fascinating stuff. I could talk about it for ages. And it's why I love adolescents so much. Like people get down on them for the very things that adolescence is designed to do. Adolescence is a time when kids are supposed to individuate, pull away from us, um, Mm -hmm. you know, go do things that are novel to them, which sometimes includes risk. It's a misnomer to say that um, uh, that adolescents crave risk. They don't crave risk. They crave novelty, um, which often comes with risk. Um, But that's the job of an adolescent, right, to learn how to be adults away from us. So it's Mm -hmm. if you know how to take advantage of that and create opportunities for positive risk rather than scary, dangerous risk. Um, It's great. If you can just reframe some of the stuff that we see as negative um, having to do with adolescence and and reframe it in your brain as a positive, um, then we're, we're going a long way to helping them become the people that they need to be and not want, and not ripping our hair out. Right. That's, that's an amazing way to look at it too, because like like you said, you know, the things that we love about babies are the things we get annoyed about with teens. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a very yeah. similar process, right? And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had I had a I had an uh, an expert. I talked to Dr. Dan Siegel when I was writing this book and he's just he is the man. He's just amazing when it comes to adolescence and the brain. And uh I was talking about the fact that I'm fr- I was freaked out because my now 18-year-old we moved him away from his friends, his hometown where he had lived his entire life, um, the parents of the friends that I trusted, his everything. We moved him in between middle school and high school, which is a really dangerous zone. It's a transition zone that's of particularly high risk for adolescents for drug and alcohol initiation. And he already had all this genetic risk for me. So I was talking to Dr. Dan Siegel and I'm look, I've totally blown it. Not only does my kid have high risk because of genetic stuff, we moved him during like the most dangerous time to a place where he knows no one. And Dan Siegel was like, okay, Jess, chill out for a second. Because yes, you could view this all as the disaster that you have wrought in your family and raising the risk for your child or you could br- go back and re- just remember, brush up on your books on adolescent development, brain development, and remember that adolescents crave novelty and pushing them towards positive novel situations and positive risk is really great for them. So what is a move, but a whole lot of novelty and a whole lot of risk and a whole lot of scary things that can help them build self-efficacy and feel, help them feel like they're in control of things and help them dis, you know, help them towards finding things that aren't necessarily all about you, the parents. And so I'm standing there going, oh man, Dan Siegel has just turned this into like a, a therapy session on the phone. And he yeah. completely changed the way I thought about our move. It was opportunities to give my kid exactly what he needed during this period, as opposed to my framing it as, well, I suck. I'm the worst parent ever. I've heaped risk on my kids. So don't underestimate the power of reframing. It's incredibly important, especially during COVID um, to help kids sort of take a positive spin on um, as much as possible without being a Pollyanna. Of course, they see through that right, right away. All right. 
So. Oh, sorry, I was I was just sitting here. I'm I'm right. digesting. It's, I know it's, it's a lot of information. <laughs> no, like, I, I honestly, like, I I felt like sorry, the book I'm a lot. <laughs> no, I feel like no, reading the book good. was like a college course it's of good. like. It's needed. It's it like, was a college course of the developmental brain and like how you can try to limit the risk factors, right? But like not just limiting the risk factors, but trying to honestly raise healthy, independent kids, mm-hmm. like. Like right. you said in the book, like that's our goal as parents is to get our kids to a healthy, independent state where we don't have to completely worry about their decisions. I mean, obviously, we're always going to worry, right? Because yeah. that's, that's what parents, yeah. where we as parents do. But we want them to get to a point where they can go out into the world and they'll be okay. And it helps that I wrote The Gift of Failure first because. Yeah that book was all about not overparenting and not being too controlling and realizing that, you know, the highly controlling parent, the the kids of highly controlling parents lie to their parents more and, and keep more from them and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, with this book, it was tough because a lot of the research is overly simplistic and just says things like, the most dangerous time, for example, the most dangerous times for adolescents um, for initiating drugs is summer when they're hanging out with other teenagers without parents around. So, well, what do I do with that? Like, say you can never hang out with your friends and there always right. has to be an adult in the room. That's insane. As my husband likes to say, we could prevent, you know, most melanoma by never letting children go outside. But that makes we can't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance what the research says about, um, you know, drugs and alcohol and, um, and when they're most susceptible to, you know, initiating uh, drug use and, and substance use versus what adolescents need in order to become fully actualized human beings. And those two things aren't always compatible. And so walking that line between being overly controlling and being up in our kids' faces all the time um, versus giving them some information and some trust. And by the way, the substance use prevention programs that we know work the best are ones where we give kids information and guide them towards making better decisions themselves. Um, taking all the power away from them and doing all the decision-making for them doesn't teach them anything really. So right. walking that line was really, um, right. it was quite, quite a tightrope walk with this book. Can tell there's a lot there's a there's a there's a lot um, of, of great information and I'm already learning a lot just uh, verbiage of course <laughs> what what to say but um, I really I really enjoy what you talk about when you talk about um, being you know genetically predisposed mm-hmm. I can never say it, predisposed predisposed to, yeah 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 I can never say it uh, <laughs> to um, certain behaviors to um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that certain behaviors. And I would really love for you to just kind of just yeah. throw it on us again with that, because I am a recovering alcoholic. My father um, is a recovery alcoholic and my grandfather, his dad, mm-hmm. uh, lost his battle to alcohol. Mm-hmm. So um, very open about it. So I, yeah. I it really hits home for me. I, I really yeah. love to hear this. Well, and I thought. Well, cool. I don't want to be like my parent who's an alcoholic. So I'm just going to stay away from alcohol. And that worked until I was like in my forties and then it just snuck up on me. And suddenly there I was a full-blown alcoholic. So, um, yeah, the genetics thing is really tricky and I wish it was as simple as there's this new technology called CRISPR where they can go in and literally just knock a gene out and solve the problem Mm -hmm. for some like genetic diseases. 
that's not how this works. Unfortunately, it isn't like there's the alcoholic gene or the substance abuser gene kind of thing. It's we can't just knock something out and make it better because it's um, the genes that have to do with substance use disorder or predisposition to substance use disorder are hooked into so many other things like our personalities. There's a huge overlap between those things, personality and substance use disorder. And, you know, there as, as a teacher in middle school, there are occasionally times when I look around at my students and I, I say, oh, that kid I'm worried about with like, you know, he likes thrills and needs more dopamine on a regular basis. And, you know, <laughs> There are just certain kids where I go, okay, yeah. And then, you know, it's funny because people who work with um, people in recovery will say, you know, there are just certain personality types that are attracted to certain drugs. There's, mm-hmm. and, and in the same way that there are certain drugs that for some people just hit in the right spot. Like um, I, I talk a lot about, there's a wonderful book um, by Nick and David Chef. David Chef is the guy who wrote Beautiful Boy and Nick Chef, his mm-hmm. son, was the beautiful boy. And they wrote a wonderful book for adolescents called High. Um, it's a book I recommend all the time to parents to just leave out in the house. Like, don't get your parents stink on it and say, hey, sweetie, would you read this book? I bought it for you. It's about drugs and alcohol. Just leave it out in the house in a place where they might see it. But Nick, Nick talks really specifically about um, you know, for him, it was all about crystal methamphetamine. Like he tried that drug for the first time and he was like, that is what has ha- been missing from my life. This is it. I'm all in. And, you know, in recovery, you hear that sometimes from people where they're like, I had my first drink and I'm like, there it is. The instructions to the universe are in this liquid right here. Um, and that's tied into personality as well. So trying to just pinpoint what the genetics are around substance use disorder, you can't. And then on top of that, there's also this thing called epigenetics, which means that it's like a cross between environment and um, genetics. It means above the genes, epi, it means above. And what that means is that certain experiences that kids have um, also affect how their genes get expressed, either turned on or turned off. And trauma in a kid's early life can change the way our genes express themselves. So that's why so much of the prevention talk around substance use disorder has to be centered on childhood experience, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Um, There's a book by Nadine Burke Harris called The Deepest Well that I cannot recommend more highly. She's the Surgeon General of California and a pediatrician. She wrote a brilliant book about that. And Gabor Mate is out there all the time in his book, uh, um, uh, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. Uh, that one, that book's all about trauma and substance use disorder. And he's fully in the camp of substance use disorder is, a tr- is based in trauma, 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 trauma. Um, so there's a lot out there about not just the genetics, but about the other stuff that impacts the genetics and sort of compounds in order. There's a terrible analogy that I hate using. I really, really do, but it's so apt, which is genetics for substance use disorder are the bullet that you load into the gun. It can just sit there and never hurt anyone. It could be there for a thousand years and never hurt a human being, but trauma is the trigger. Trauma is what gets that genetic bullet out Mm -hmm. of the gun and sort of sets things rolling. So we have to be talking about adverse childhood experiences and early intervention for those things in order to get a handle on this. Mm. That's, that's, mm, yeah. Talking about epigenetics that explains Wisconsin. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's where I grew up. Specifically. I mean, 
Uh, <laughs> you're you're expected to be able to drink and hold your liquor in Wisconsin. Like it's not. Well, and there actually it's, behind it. It's funny you say right. that because there are cultural expectations around it too. So, for mm-hmm. example, a lot of parents come to me. I'm I'm very anti um, sipping because there's research. It's really clear that parents who give kids sips of alcohol or their own little glass of wine before alcohol is legal for them, which legality to me, mm-hmm. when I use legality, I mean it, it's a shorthand for until the brain is done developing because that's early to mid twenties. Um, parents who give sips to kids have kids with much higher rates of substance use disorder during their lifetimes. And pos- part of that is because mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 90% of people who have substance use disorder in adulthood report that they started before they were age 18. But what I hear from a lot of, and the, and the older a kid is when they first initiate, the lower their lifelong risk of substance use disorder is. So if a kid's in eighth grade and they try alcohol for the first time, their lifelong risk of substance use disorder is around 50%. But if you can get them mm-hmm. to 21, it's 10%. So just statistically speaking, and yes, there are some statistical anomalies in there that I'm not going to go into. Um, so it's really important to understand that when we use these excuses like, yes, but I am so worried about my kid drinking. I figure if I give them alcohol here and I take everyone's keys, they'll be safe. Or um, I just want my kid to grow up like those European kids who understand moderation and don't go crazy when they get to 21 or 18 or whenever the first keg shows up in their vicinity and they don't go bananas. Well, the problem there is that um, it's the European moderation thing is a myth. The European Union as a whole has the highest levels of alcohol consumption in the world. But speaking of Wisconsin, there are certain <laughs> countries within Europe that have lower levels of alcohol consumption, not necessarily because they have public better public health uh, initiatives, but because culturally it is not cool to be falling over in the street drunk. Whereas if you go to places like, you know, I was in Northern Ireland, I've spent a ton of time in, in England, you know, on the weekends, there are people just falling over in the streets on the weekends, especially. Um, But if you go in Southern Europe, that is less cool. Uh, Greece and, and Italy, it's just less culturally appropriate to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on a whole, you know, if you're modeling your family and alcohol use after Europe, I would think really hard about that because the romantic mm-hmm. ideal you picture in your head is not um, reality. So that cultural thing mm-hmm. is powerful. That's why there's stuff in the book about the media and kids' exposure to mm-hmm. um to drugs and alcohol in the media. And not just that, but using adolescents' natural propensity to hate being manipulated to talk about what the media is trying to do to them. Like, what are they selling with this ad? They're selling uh, you are going to be pretty and popular and have lots of friends if you just drink this beer. And, you know, I think it's really great for kids to have media literacy around that. And that feeds into the cultural conversation, but you're absolutely on target when you say that there are places in this country where it is more culturally appropriate. In fact, you can predict statistically speaking, how much your kid will drink in college based on the alcohol enforcement rates in the state of the, uh, where their college is. Actually, you can predict who's going to drink in college full stop. Um, It's really easy to do. Um, And a lot fewer kids drink in college than you might assume, actually. I almost didn't even put I almost didn't even put a college. I almost didn't even put a college (laughs) chapter in the book because I'm like, well, 
duh, Animal House. I'm 52. Sorry, I'm dating myself. But, you know, Animal House, they're they're inextricably linked. And it turns out it's not true. Far fewer kids drink in college, let alone drink on a regular basis in college. And it's a very, very small sliver of the population who drink the majority of the alcohol, the vast majority of the alcohol. And it's 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 men between the ages of 18 and 24, white, um, not on scholarship, not first generation in college. Um, and then if you look at the people who drink the least, it's first generation in college, people of color, especially Asians and, and black African-American and, and African-American women um, who drink the least. And so, and you can really, and it's, and those men that drink the boys, it tends to be people in Greeks and uh, in the Greek system and who are involved either as Uber fans or uh, participating in sports, specifically high contact sports. There are four sports that have the highest levels of alcohol use. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's a uh, it's highly yeah. predictable who will drink. And then and then you can get to the question of why the people are drinking. And it turns out that if people are drinking to elevate their happiness, um, like their baseline already happy and they're elevating their happiness happiness, they're less problematic as drinkers than people who are drinking to socially isolate, to make them make their anxiety or depression go away. Those are the people we need to be looking at really carefully. So Mm -hmm. it's really not that hard to look at your kid and say, okay, specifically how at risk is my kid based on personality, Mm -hmm. genetics, and the choices they make in their life. This is important stuff. It's yeah. For parents. I mean, to kind of boil a lot of this down to is like, respect your kid's intelligence. Like being like, that's something that I've done. And I, it's been like number one. Right. And I, am not, I'm not saying like I'm perfect or anything, Hmm. but since my children have been born, like I've over explained everything to them because Mm -hmm. part of it is if I can't explain it, then I'm doing it because I don't want to deal with some of it. And that's not being a good parent. So I need to allow them to sometimes make a mess. I need to allow them to splash in the puddles and stuff like that. But like just respecting your kid's intelligence is going to have, allow you to have more conversations with them, meaningful conversations. And I mean, you know, even their friends, like you could be a mentor to people. Like, I think back to high school, and part of, you know, part of the reason I didn't drink in high school was sports. But, you know, when I was really, I would say most at risk for it, like I had a really, really important mentor in my life. Like I had somebody mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. I didn't just trust, but he had a big impact on, he had a big impact on who I became as a person now. Like mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a beacon in my life is going back to him, my junior and senior year of high school, like the impact that he had as a, as a basketball coach and not just that, but as a, as an adult who cared about how I was going to become. So just like respecting kids intelligence when you talk to them is the the research is really, really clear that even kids who have been through devastating trauma, if they have one person who not just who they can, not just who they can trust, but who, um, sees them, knows them for who they are. Um, you know, I'm constantly telling parents, um, you know, we have to love the kids we have, not the kids we wish we had. We have to get to know our kids for who they are. Um, also, your kids, <clears throat> your kids in particular, are in a period of development where justice is, they have a very heightened sense of justice. It's that, oh. it's, you know, 
like sharing that popsicle. It has to be exactly even oh. down the middle. And explaining the says, why. He's not sharing properly. It's not that he's not sharing. <laughs> it's he's not sharing properly. Yeah. The why <laughs> helps them cope with what can sometimes feel with injustice. Mm-hmm. And so their mm-hmm. sense of justice is incredibly heightened. It's why they're going to come back and say, well, if I can't do that thing, why can my brother, or if I can't do that thing, why can you, it's why, you know, an adolescent will say, if I have to put down my phone, why does my parent get to be glued to their phone constantly? You know, that the why really helps with that, um, get their brain around, uh, you know, why things are happening. They don't, they're not very kids in general, and especially adolescents are not very good at, you know, the just because I said so, right. you know, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I'm still kind of stuck a little bit back on the, cause I remember reading some of the data and it did state that the data is decreasing, uh, for, for those uh, adolescents drinking, um, the older adolescents, so just like you stated, those the right mm-hmm. in college. Um, why do you think that is? Why, so why, why it's a couple of things. There's a there's a report talk about being a geek. This is like in August. This 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 survey comes out. It's a survey that comes out once a year, and it's a survey about attitudes around risky behaviors with kids. So it's yeah, not just a survey of. I do. I do. It's um it it's a real it comes out from the University of Michigan and it's it's about um it's a, a survey around kids and risky behaviors. And it's not just who's doing the drugs and what numbers of kids are doing the drugs, but their perceptions around the risks uh, associated with doing various things. Love this report. So anyway, for, for about a decade before COVID hit drug and alcohol use among kids was going down and stead pretty steadily. And then just before COVID hit, it kind of leveled off a little bit, which, you know, is worrisome, but we're still, we were still headed in the right direction. Um, And then COVID hit and all hell broke loose. um, And, you know, adult use has gone up a lot. Adults letting kids have alcohol at home has gone up. Um, certain categories of drug use have gone up uh, among adults. Uh, alcohol and psychedelic use has gone up. Anyway, uh, and marijuana use has gone up. So, the, you know, keeping an eye on trends is really, really important. But that sort of gives us a big picture of what the, what's happening in the country and why that is. I think our prevention science is getting better. I think um, I, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of social emotional learning and 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 mm-hmm. you know we have these keen t- kindergarten teachers saying that you know social skills are more important than than their reading and math skills in kindergarten and that's all about social emotional learning that's all about their social emotional skills um, we have incredible writers like Michelle Borba, who has there are two books behind me one is called um, Unselfie and it's about raising kids who have empathy and can think about other kids um, all of a sudden there's this real emphasis on empathy as part of social emotional learning. I think all of that, getting kids to stand up for themselves, um, teaching kids some refusal skills, practical refusal skills, mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff, I think. And, you know, understanding our science is getting better around, you know, until about 30 years ago, we thought that when a kid was 10, their they were their brain was done developing because it was at its adult weight and size. But, you know, you guys have been around 10 year olds, you know, they're not done developing. So, you know, it wasn't until the it wasn't until we had science, we had tools like the functional MRI machines that we were able to get in there and really see what's going on and start teaching kids about their brains. And I I'm in schools all year long, well, at least pre COVID and 
I walk into kindergarten classrooms where there are posters about the brain, like the upper stuff and the lower stuff and helping kids understand that when they punch another kid, that's coming from their lower brain and that they need to start letting their upper brain talk a little bit more loudly. And that stuff is so important. And read the work of Carol Dweck around fixed and growth mindsets. That's all about kids understanding how their brains work and harnessing that to help them be more um, motivated to learn and, and believe that their capacity is is greater than we ever thought it was to change their intelligence and to increase their intelligence. So there's a lot happening at the confluence of a lot of things, I think, that are bringing those numbers down. But we have really good prevention programs now that, you know, that I think, despite those sad numbers I told you about at the beginning of the podcast, I think we're headed in the right direction. That's good. COVID's going to test it, though. How much do you think, like, kind of the revolution past 10 years of mental health has helped because a the lot. amount that we don't, yeah, the amount that we, cause we used to like Monson, I talk about this all the time, you know, yeah. we were raised in toxic masculinity, but that's yeah. not yeah. just like, we say it's toxic, toxic masculinity. But when I think back, like that also extended to girls, like girls weren't mm-hmm. allowed to show emotion, but only so much emotion. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, like the amount that we've kind of, I guess we're trying to, not do that and roll that yeah. back. And I find myself still having bad habits that come from the toxic right. masculinity that I, I was raised in. I need to be don't cry, be brave, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, don't even feel emotions. Yeah. You just yeah. stand there. <laughs> yeah. I think it's huge. If you look at, and, and I'm assuming you guys listen to the, some of the same podcasts I do, but if you look and if you listen to who's out there talking right now and get mm-hmm. being heard, there are people like, I mean, Dak Shepard is a great, a great uh, example. So Dak Shepard, Kristen Bell's husband, armchair expert is his podcast. And he and Monica Padman um, host this podcast. That's wonderful. Mostly they talk to celebrities. Sometimes people like me are lucky enough to get to go on there and and be uh, and talk to them about stuff. And around, uh, so Dax is in recovery and um, he had 16 years of recovery. And then a couple of years ago, he relapsed. And lied about it for a long time, but he was starting to get called on it. And so he came on the air and he, uh, they put up a podcast called seven days where he explained that for the past, however long it was, I can't remember. It was like a year he had been using opiates and he had been lying to everyone. He had relapsed and he was scared to death. I mean, scared to death, but he went on the podcast to show because someone told him in recovery, he has a really great uh, community of recovery. And someone said, look, yes, you might lose sponsors. Yes. You're going to lose. Some people are going to be disappointed because they see you Mm -hmm. as this great role model in sobriety, but you are going to be of such great service to people by admitting Mm -hmm. that you screwed up and that you're willing to get back on it and start at day one all over again. And, you know, argue with you will with the whole counting days thing, but it was an incredible moment where he got on there and he was humble and he was willing to show his emotions and he was willing to apologize and he was willing to make amends to the people he'd been lying to. And I think that episode is one of the most powerful commentaries on the ability of men to be vulnerable and, you know, not to rattle on, but like the whole, you know, Prince Harry thing, he's out there doing mental health work. The, 
there's a wonderful woman named um, Dr. Lori Gottlieb who has a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And her son, Zach Gottlieb, has an Instagram. Uh, uh, I think it's called hash, I think it's called at Talk with Zach. I'll look it up in just a second. Um, and he's a high school kid who's on Instagram talking about his feelings and his anxiety and his depression and that it, how important it is for us to be talking about mental health. That I was talking to my own kids about just how crazy it is, how many kids they go to school with who are out and proud and gay or trans or bi or Mm -hmm. non-binary. And I'm like, look, when I was in high school, that was like unheard of. And same thing with talking about mental health. I think it's just amazing. Um, Yeah, it's at, where is it? Talk with Zach. And that's Zach with a Z-H. I'm floored by how much more discussion there is about mental health and emotions with boys. And I think it's really amazing. I, I'm so grateful for it but as of the mother of two boys. Mm-hmm. That's something my boys have more <laughs> vocal, emotional intelligence than I do. So like, I'm very yeah. proud of that too. Like he will. The saying is, the saying is you have to name it to tame it. That's a uh, cognitive behavioral therapy thing. My friend, uh, Tina Payne Bryson, who writes beautifully about kids and, and emotions, you have to name it to tame it. You cannot awesome. possibly hope like to that. deal with your emotions unless you know what they are. Mm. Not heard that before. That's fantastic. Mm. I love that phrase. Mm. You got to name it. And that goes for everybody. I yes. mean, you know, <laughs> this, like if you're in recovery and you're feeling off, you say, okay, halt, H-A-L-T. Am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Why am I feeling weak right now? And often it's because you're tired or because you're hungry or you know whatever that thing is. You have to be able to identify what the problem is before you can solve it. If I'm not stopping to say I'm yelling at my husband because I haven't eaten a meal in 12 hours, you know, Unless I'm willing to have that kind of introspection and and the abil- the emotional literacy to talk about my emotions, I'm never going to be able to deal with them. And I'm just going to inflict my crap on other people too. And I'm never going to mm. get better. And I'm going to keep drinking. And that's, so it, the first time I called myself an alcoholic out loud was on the podcast. And like, a few really? Ago, wow. Yeah. Yeah. When was that again, RJ? Was that, was that a year ago? Was that, it was like was two years? It was like a year and a half ago-ish. Yeah. It was like, uh, I think, I can't remember exactly which episode it was, but like just yeah. oh. saying like that, that it's was the big. moment that I entered into recovery. Like, yeah. I knew it, but I just never said it. And like, wow, just saying it like took that stress maybe that I w- didn't know I was feeling. Like I said, you yeah. know, and like you said, you got to name it to tame it. I said like saying the demon out loud, like yeah. it took some away. So that, that is... That's I love that phrase. And uh, that's why I think that step, you know, if you're into 12 step stuff, the for me anyway, working with a therapist or going through the steps where you Mm -hmm. have to write down all of the shit you're pissed about, you're upset about the resentments you have, all the shit you did that you never sorry for the swearing, um, all the stuff you did that, um, you know, you inflicted all this stuff on other, uh, right. All, you know, no matter how shameful it is, you got to write it all down and then just tell it to one person, therapist, your sponsor, whoever that person is, because then you can, you can let it go. That's the amazing thing is that you're like, mm-hmm. and then for me in sobriety, the, the thing that's been such a relief to me is 
um, I sometimes don't pay attention very well. And so my short-term memory kind of farkles. And, and then, so for me to be able to say to my kid, um, you know, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening and I don't remember what you said last night. And, and for them to not, for it not to have to occur to them, oh, wait, was mom drinking last night? Or I got hit by a snowplow a couple of years ago when I was in my car. It was a really bad accident. But my very first thought was, God, I'm glad I'm alive. It wasn't that. It was, um, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm sober because otherwise someone would have been thinking, oh, did anyone test her blood? Did anyone breathalyze her? Right. Just that relief of being in this place where that's no longer a factor mm-hmm. that I have to deal with. It's it's been good. It's been really I'm happy really good. for you. I can see I could see the happiness on your face when yeah. you say that. That's that is pretty cool. How stuff. long have you it been in recovery? We didn't get into this earlier. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, like eight and a half. Yeah, I'm eight and a half. I got sober on uh, June seventh, two thousand and thirteen. Um, not coincidentally, not coincidentally, my mother's birthday, because I got so <laughs> loaded um, at my mom's birthday party that I had to be taken upstairs by my husband, and I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Which I guess I don't know if that's good or bad, but I don't remember it, so it was bad. <laughs> it was bad, no matter how you cut it. It was bad. So yeah, my dad Question actually, my dad intervened on me the next morning and he said, you need help. And and I was at the place where I was ready to, but yes, what's your question? You said, you said eight and a half, right? Yeah. Eight, eight and a half years. I, I want for you, like what, how do you keep, how do you keep going? How do you, and that, that's a very vague question or, or rather broad. No, it's not. It's this. really, um, no, no, no. It's super specific to me. How I keep going is my sober community, the people who hold me accountable, my students at the rehab, I could not have worked at the rehab if I was drunk or, or on drugs, not only because I was drug tested, but because I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. Um, the P I, now I work once every two weeks, I go and as a prevention and kind of as a recovery coach at this, uh, rehab in Vermont called Santa at Stowe. I couldn't go, I couldn't show up there every two weeks if I had relapsed. I mean, I could, I guess I could, if I relapsed and we had a conversation about it, but if I was using, I can't be of service to other people. And that service as a sober person And also, you know, frankly, I'm a very public person now, all of this, like I talk about sobriety constantly, if I could do that, if I was using. So, you know, there's, yes, there's my kids. Yes, there's my husband. If I were to relapse and not get better, um, I know for a fact that my husband would not stay married to me. Um, You know, there's just a lot of, there are a lot of people counting on me staying sober and yes, I stay sober for myself, but I, my, for me, my higher power is the sober community that I am accountable to, not just to, to be there if someone texts and needs my help, but as someone who actually works in the recovery field, I, I don't, you know, this is, I think for me, it has been such a, be- a boon to be this public about my sobriety Mm -hmm. because relapsing is just not an option for me at this point. I mean, Mm. I can't speak, I can speak to today. My, for example, my mom and dad are showing up today and um, I'm going to, my mom's going to hang out here at the house with us for a week while my dad goes on a very much needed vacation. And I couldn't be there for my parents in the way they need me to be if I were drinking. And all of that conspires to keep me Sober day to day to day to day. I love it. I love it. Those are some powerful anchors that you yeah. have. And 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 
I love what you said as well is, is he relapses is, is not an option. Um, not today anyway. Man. Yeah. Not exactly. today. <laughs> Thank That's, goodness. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and uh, I hope, I hope we can get you on again. Just to keep Absolutely. This is so much fun. I'd love to keep teaching me. Right. I love it. I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about adolescence. Happy to come back and talk about littler kids, uh, gift of failure. My, if, I don't know if I sent you my first book as well. I'm happy to send you gift of failure because it starts with little kids too. Happy to send that. I, yeah, I'm going to read it for sure. Cause uh, okay, good. this one, I, I read it through this week so it it went pretty quick so uh and then there's like i said there's so much information in there and then knowing about like your the failure uh and letting kids grow from that like that's how how i want to parent so like that's how i wanted to parent before Mm -hmm. that and like but having those guidelines and those steps is gonna be that's gonna it's gonna be so nice to know that like i'm i'm not like out on a limb here like it's been (laughs) done right Um, Yeah, it's I was really lucky in that I had parents who trusted me to make good decisions, uh, let me suffer the consequences when I didn't, and loved mm -hmm. me and supported me. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm and my husband had the same thing. And I I think, you know, a lot of when I get interviewed, a lot of people ask me about how I was parented. And and that's it. They trusted me. And that was that was big. They knew who I was as a person. They didn't put their expectations of who I should be on me. They let me be who I was and am. And I'm just incredibly grateful to them for that. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Yes, it is. So, Jess, if people wanted to keep up with you and what you <laughs> have uh, going on, where, how best could they do that? At jessicalahey.com, if you want to sign up, I send out a, I don't know, intermittent newsletter. <laughs> and sorry, the dogs are barking. There's a dog walking down our street, no, apparently with no okay. person with them. Um, uh, so jessicalahey.com. I, I'm on Twitter a lot, Twitter and Instagram, I guess, um, at, at Jess Leahy on, on Twitter and at Teacher Leahy on Instagram. But if you go to my website, jessicalahey.com and sign up, you'll you'll get I'm in the process. I have this wall in my office that has lots of stuff on it and um, I'll turn the computer so you can see it. And uh, it's my wall of things. And I've been a bunch of people asked me to tell, tell them what's on my wall of things. So lately my newsletter has been talking about the weird, the weird path. Some of these things took to end up on my wall in my office. That's really cool. All right. Perfect. (laughs) Mons, where can people follow you? You guys can follow me. Find me. You you changed it up, RJ. I did. I did. You changed it up. You caught me. You caught me off guard right there. But you guys can find me on Twitter at MonteBall28, Instagram MonteBall, uh, MonteBall.com as well. Uh, shoot us questions, topics, or untapped cake pages. We'll get back to you, RJ. Where can they find you? Uh, untapped keg everywhere. Uh, we were lucky enough. We got untapped keg on every social media. You can follow me at Twitter. Uh, it's Trickster, I-T-Z. The I is a one in Trickster. And you know what? The Packers are in the playoffs, and the playoffs are starting. So if you want to see a full-blown meltdown, follow It's Trickster, because it's going to happen. So <laughs> oh, I love you. it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today, because at least if we don't make it, we tried. Have a good week, everybody.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.